The talk is about wisdom as a refuge. The mindfulness practice is a direct path to wisdom. The Buddha said that just as the ocean has only one taste, the taste of salt, so his teaching has only one taste, the taste of liberation. So we do the mindfulness practice to develop a taste for liberation instead of having the taste of being lost or confused. As the taste for the truth develops, the heart can become more light and pure and certain, because the heart becomes more disentangled from experience and free. Disentanglement occurs as we understand that wisdom tells us that we're nothing. Especially in a long retreat, we encourage you to very deeply explore the question, who am I, through our own body and mind, and as deeply as we can. And one aspect of the teaching is discovering the three characteristics of existence. Uh, We try to love the truth so much that we're willing to face impermanence or anicca. We love the truth so much that we're willing to face dukkha, or the unreliability of experience, or that we never know what's going to happen. And we love the truth so much that we're willing to face anatta, that no matter how closely we look at our body and mind, we can't find a solid, durable self. These three characteristics are very intertwined, but I'd like to emphasize the anatta aspect tonight. When I was about 16 years old, I had a a girlfriend that had a brother that went into the Air Force, uh, and he had never had a room to himself. They had such a big family. And when he went into the Air Force, he kind of had the freedom to do what he wanted to do in this little place that he was staying with other people. Uh, So he turned the living room into a place where he could take his car engine apart. And he'd always wanted to take his car engine apart, but his parents wouldn't let him take it apart in the living room. So here was his first uh, taste of the freedom of leaving home. So we went to visit him soon after he left uh, home. And we walked into the living room, and there was a tarp the size of the living room there. And he had the whole engine apart. Uh, and you, you, if you know about engines, it's quite oily and kind of messy. Uh, and I think that I didn't expect the, you know, the scene as I walked into the living room. And I was just totally incredulous. You know, just, I just said, what? are you doing? And then he was so happy. I'd never seen him so happy. And he took a piston off the floor and just showed it to me with this intense delight. Uh, And he put it up to my nose. Smell this, he said, you know, just (laughs) smell this. And I didn't have the same response to this uh, piston and the smell as he did. You know, I couldn't quite get, you know, why was he so happy? 
Uh, but I appreciated, you know, even though I didn't take delight in the smell of the piston, uh, I appreciated his joy. And in fact, in my whole life, usually uh, all through school, if a teacher had some interest or joy in the subject, I would get interested in it. And if there wasn't, I wouldn't be interested. Uh, so I was appreciative of him taking such happiness and taking this apart, this whole engine apart, to understand how it worked on such a minute level. Maybe uh, from this metaphor you can get a, a sense that that's what we're doing in this practice. We're looking at our own mind and body in that same way. And we're taking this whole idea of what a separate self is apart and looking very closely at the pieces of what experience really is, what our mind and body really is. And hopefully you're finding some joy and happiness in that love for that exploration itself, for the love of the truth itself. The word car is just a concept for what? The word body is just a concept for what? The word mind, consciousness, There's so many concepts we live with, but do we really take the time to explore our direct experience of them over and over? Mindfulness is a non-judgmental attention where we notice our moment-to-moment experience and we're trying to discover how an I or a me or a you happens. And we try to take this exploration as deep as we can. It's meant to be a dissolving process. When concentration and mindfulness are in some kind of balance, then we can see clearly. This dissolving process is important to understand because we need to ask ourselves, well, what are we dissolving? And we're dissolving wrong view. We're dissolving being imprisoned in the conceptual world of reality or the relative level of reality. When there's enough stillness of of attention, we start to see how we glue our moment-to-moment experience together and make concepts. And this knowing reality from the conceptual world is a great security for us, knowing that this is a bell, you know, that's a light, this is a boat, uh, this is me, this is a river. You know, this is this, I know this, is very uh, secure for us. When we can let go of the concept, there's a, a level of not knowing that we need to face, and that's a kind of insecurity. If you look at the, the way the planning mind works, you know, we think, I will go home after this retreat, or I will go somewhere after this retreat, or I will go back to this job or this, this person. Uh, these, these thoughts about the future are our sense of identification and sense of security. Knowing and planning uh, are a way that we avoid uh, facing the fear of the loss of the separate self. If we see clearly, 
the real yogi has no future. How do we cut through this intense identification with experience as being me or I or mine? Uh, some of it is this willingness to face the fear of the, the loss about some kind of idea that we have about ourselves, especially in relationship to the past or the future. We can assure you, which we try to do, that there's really nothing to lose. We only lose delusion. We only lose ignorance. We only lose this misperception of reality. And we, may, we might fear annihilation in this process, but with practice, we can see that with realization, life goes on. You know, the eye will still receive forms. The ear will still receive forms sounds, the mind will still receive thoughts. But with understanding, we understand that wisdom tells me I'm nothing. The idea of grasping at what is appearing need not arise. Uh, and so that the, the release from identification becomes a voluntary letting go. It's not something we have to force in any way. It's when we understand the nature of reality, there's just that letting go of identification. Probably some of you have heard when there's just the lightest breeze and the leaf stem is just uh, letting go of the branch that it's on. And the sound of that and the quality of that letting go is very similar to this experience of letting go of clinging or letting go of identification in the mind. It's just, it's, it's not dramatic, it's just we understand, oh. And even with a step, maybe we're walking and we notice hardness just disappearing, appearing, disappearing with each step. There's an understanding, oh, this is just hardness appearing and disappearing. It's not me, or I, or mine. So that we cut through that identification with a separate self, with that understanding. It's voluntary. It's not something we have to force. As you get a sense, mostly we're living within our own movie. You know, we're great Hollywood directors. We have a great drama or story going on. One of the metaphors that I like to encourage contemplating is being our own movie. Because if we imagine ourselves going into a movie and sitting down in a movie theater and looking at a screen, we can see how easily we can get lost in the storyline of what we're we're seeing on the the screen. In terms of this practice, what teachers will be encouraging you to do is say, wait a minute, you know, look behind you. You know, that's the first step of questioning being lost in the movie. Look behind you. Check out the projector. You know, what's really, how's this movie happening? Your, 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 Your drama, 
your story. How did it happen? Where did it, <laughs> how did this happen? It's so amazing. Uh, and so look at the projector. And if you really get enough mindfulness and concentration, meaning just that ability to be quiet, like the surface of a still pond or a puddle, look at the film. And then look really closely at the film, because actually a film will each will have a frame that's just one moment, and then it's gone, and another moment, and then it's gone. And the only reason why we get caught in the movie, in a movie theater, is because the film is being played at a certain speed. You know, those times, especially when I was a child and they were just perfecting, you know, movie theaters and movies uh, in, a, in a public way. I remember so, time, so many times in the middle of a movie, the, the projector would slow down. You know, it would be so disappointing, you know, that for those moments that the movie projector wasn't working right, the story disappeared. This practice is looking at the film more closely, looking at the projector more closely, or at least understanding that what's appearing in the mind, what's appearing on the screen, is just one layer of reality. Hopefully we get a sense that the taste for liberation is starting to have that desire to be free of getting lost in the, in the movie. There's so much suffering in it. Initially in practice, so much of the effort in practice is just trying to get enough space not to be lost in the storyline. You know, anything we can do to get out of being constantly involved in the thinking is the beginning. Uh, so that's, that's that ability to step out of being lost in the screen or the, the, the movie itself. And then slowly we're able to look back at the projector and then slowly we start to get moments or glimpses of the frame-by-frame. The frame-by-frame is the birth and death of consciousness. So who am I is basically our experiential moments. Each moment is being glued together. And it's not just me that will do that but all of the yous here, you know, it's like it's not just one person on the planet doing it, but you can imagine the immensity of what's happening, how the human world works, that this is the story. We're gluing all the moments together and calling it a me or a you or a mine. Seeing consciousness, hearing consciousness, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking consciousness are just frame by frame. So what we give a name to, or a concept to, like my leg, is an experience that's profoundly insubstantial. It's just a flux of causes or conditions. What's important in this is, like I said, it doesn't mean that life doesn't go on. And so this doesn't mean that everything is imaginary or that we do not exist. You know, so often we have that fear of the hollowness in this, but it means that we don't exist in the way we think we do. That's all. And that the, in the way that we think we exist creates so much suffering for us. 
So what we call I or me or mine is actually a dynamic, changing, ever-changing process of innumerable conditions. When we see that, we see clearly that there's nothing to cling to. And then there's that letting go out of that understanding. In fact, when we see really clearly, we see that we're clinging to something impossible to cling to. You know, it doesn't make any sense. And that's, that's when there is the cessation of craving or liberation. Stephen and I went to a wedding some years ago of, of one of his dear friends in Hawaii. Uh, and it was a wonderful wedding. And just, uh, just as we were getting ready to leave, I was kind of sitting down because I was tired. And uh, Steve was saying goodbye to his friends. And there was a rather quite quite large woman who had drank too much at the wedding. And I was at the wrong place at the wrong time. (laughs) And just as I was about to stand up, because I could see Steve was coming toward me and we were about to leave, uh, just in that moment of standing, uh, she lost her balance. uh, And she was thinking that I wasn't sitting where I was and was was about to sit down where I was. So in that confluence of innumerable conditions coming together, uh, and she had spike heels, uh, very spike heels. And you know that kind of intoxicated dead weight, you know. She just went back and stepped on the top of my foot in a way that broke my foot. Um, So there was that leaning back, me going up, and this excruciating pain. I just can't tell you. It was like this unexpected moment of agony. Uh, and I didn't want to ruin the wedding. <laughs> you know? It was like I knew that if I really wasn't mindful for a few of those moments, I was going to just scream and you know, make a bad end to a good time. And I didn't want to do that. You know, so Steve rushed to get ice, and I said goodbye with the greatest haste that I've ever said goodbye. And I jumped in the car in the back seat, and Steve got the ice, gave it to me, and it was like this incredibly quick exit. Uh, we were driving down this long hill from their house, uh, and I was in the back seat just moaning. And all I could say to Steve was, and I was crying, I said, I have bad, I have such bad karma. <laughs> you know, I have such bad karma. You know, and it was just. <laughs> talk about being lost in the story. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, mindfulness can come in at any time, you know, and I could feel that movement toward why did this happen? You know, and watch any time there's something really painful, the mind will avoid the pain by asking why. And that's not the point. (laughs) The point is, what is happening, and can you handle it? You know, can you open to that experience? And when I realized it's not about why it's happening and getting lost into the story, I have such bad body karma, to, oh, it's just unpleasant. You know, all it was was unpleasant. It was up there in terms of, uh, you know, the immediate moments of uh, unpleasant. It was just amazingly unpleasant. Uh, (laughs) 
But that ability to just go, oh yeah, oh yeah, I can just try to be with this rather than try to focus on why. And it's, that's liberation. I just was able to go into the sensations or, or just be with sound if I didn't want to be with the sensations and choose to be with what was happening or to be with the sounds around it or the space around it, but not to feel like I had to leave, to be there. You know, so we can talk about the end of craving, you know, but that's that kind of moment where we can see that decision not to get lost in the movie, not to get lost in the conditioning around the story, oh, this always happens to me, or whatever, and to shift to, oh, what's happening with the projector? What's happening with the frames? Frame by frame, it was just burning tightness, you know, and then the mind either tightening around that or not. The Buddha, right after his enlightenment, said, how many lives, how many rounds of rebirth have I experienced without finding the builder of this house? Now I see you, O builder. All your rafters are broken. Your ridge pole is shattered. Never again need you build a house for me. My mind has gone beyond the transitory, the conditioned, and has achieved the extinction of craving. You know, just the sound of that, you know, to really see that we're the house builder and that we don't have to do that anymore. So we get the question, you know, how is wisdom a refuge? You know, after how many lives do we find some kind of refuge or safety? And we get the sense in that that the extinction of craving is really the end of struggle. You know, there's no more separate house, no more separate I or me or mine. So it's the end of that stressful, self-centered life and the beginning of a real light, quiet, imperturbability, no matter what's happening. We go beyond the transitory by understanding experience itself. And please don't get the idea that this is something far off. (laughs) It's just so close to us. You know, it's closer to us than our skin, our heartbeat, this understanding. Anytime we think, I am my body, or I am my thoughts, or I am my emotions, it's all we need to understand is that that's a misperception of reality. And sometimes we'll get the idea that we have to reject the conceptual world, but that's not true. You know, the human journey from being an infant, you know, through the uh, baby years to childhood, to adolescence, a lot of the journey is learning how to be in the relative world of reality. I assure you it's helpful to know that that's a rug, you know, and that's a Buddha, you know, and this is a person. You know, it's helpful to know how to be strong in the world, in the world of form. You know, we don't have to learn about this and say, well, you know, forget that. That's not the point. The point is that we can learn that there's more than that. You know, that liberation 
is getting out of being lost in that, in the prison of it. So we develop a great thirst for the truth rather than just the concept. The more we get lost in the conceptual world as we get older in life, the more dull and boring and disillusioned we get. And the more we listen to that thirst, you know, it's like a homing instinct that we all have. You know, we, we're spiritual beings. When we listen to that thirst for the truth, the less dull, the less boring, the less disillusioned we get. The Buddha taught that we have four kinds of refuge in the mind. And just think of them as safety or refuge. He said that we can be blessed with wisdom as our refuge, and that's our greatest accomplishment. We can be blessed with the truth as refuge, and that's our greatest accomplishment. We can be be blessed with renunciation as our refuge, and that refuge is our greatest accomplishment. And the fourth is that we can be blessed with tranquility as a refuge, and that that is our greatest accomplishment. So he said we ought not to neglect wisdom. We ought to abide in the truth. We ought to practice renunciation, and we ought to cultivate tranquility. So if we think about the blessing of wisdom as our refuge, that that's our greatest accomplishment, You know, this is the refuge is realizing that we don't have to cling to anything, anything whatsoever in the world. And when we don't cling, there's that freedom of the heart. It brings us tranquility and liberation or peace. And each one has so much depth, these refuges. So if you took just that sense of the truth as being our refuge, the intuitive wisdom, uh, the levels of depth of intuitive wisdom, uh, gets us deeper and deeper in touch with the truth. There's all kinds of aspects of renunciation, uh, and we can see that it's any aspect of letting go. It's a kind of voluntary letting go in and of itself. It's a kind of simplicity. It's often... um, a way of seeing that we don't need to take more than we need in this world, on whatever level. In this context, uh, renunciation also means um, being free from the five aggregates. And this leads to the tranquility as a refuge because Uh, In its fulfillment, we're free of greed, hatred, and delusion. That's suffering. And the Buddha said that with the tranquility, finally, as a refuge, we really understand that the holy life means that done is what had to be done. You know, that as human beings, we have this potential. Uh, And we really know, you know, only we know for sure, if done as had to be done. You know, that's all you have to know. You know, if you suffer in any way, there's more work to do. 
no big deal. You know, that's all it means, is that we just keep taking another step, another breath, with mindfulness. The Buddha taught that these four refuges of the mind cut through the delusion of being a separate self, uh, because then the delusion of separate self has no hold on us, and the tranquility arises. So he described what the different self-views are. He said that the idea that I am this or I am that is a self-view. And he described these very beautifully, these ideas that we have about ourselves. I am neither this nor that is a self-view. I will be this or that is a self-view. I will be neither this nor that (laughs) is a self-view. I will be a being having form. I will be a being having no form. I will be a being having perception. I will be a being having no perception. I will be a being neither having or not having perception. You know, it's so simple, but it's so clear. He's saying that any one of these is a kind of suffering. And he described it as uh, a disease, being Believing in a separate self is a disease, an abscess, or an arrow. When we have transcended self-views, we have this mind of refuge, of wisdom. It's so beautiful. Wisdom as refuge. Being blessed by the wisdom of refuge is our greatest accomplishment. One of the things that Upandita said to me once, uh, in the moment that he said it, um, it had a lot of humor, but it may be not something that makes you burst out laughing. Uh, But if you get a sense of seeing the body and mind clearly, he said that if you see this body and mind clearly, there's no possibility for conceit. You know, and that's such a beautiful teaching. You know, what does this mean for us? That if we saw the mind and body clearly, there'd be no possibility for conceit. You know, so I am better, I am worse, I am equal. These the Buddha considered to be actual craziness, madness. Earth element. Say if we just looked at, how is conceit possible if we see the body clearly? Earth element, all that range from softness to hardness. But when the Buddha described earth element, he was encouraging us to really understand that experientially, not conceptually. But if you look at the whole field of physical consciousness, he was including hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, tendons, bones, marrow of the bones, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, new food, old food, and anything else which is in the body that has that range of solidity or hardness. He said that if we understand 
earth element in accordance with the truth as it really is, we would understand that the body doesn't belong to me, that it is not myself. And so that non-attachment happens just if you see one step and you notice hardness appear and disappear. There would be no possibility for conceit if you understood that. And that's with each element, with wind element or air element. We describe it to you as really trying to get in touch with vibration or stiffness or movement or pressure, tightness, pulling, throbbing. Another way to see this that the Buddha described was wind blowing upwards, downwards, wind lying in the stomach, lying in the intestines, diffusing through the body, the wind inhaled and exhaled, or winding winding and blowing in the field of the physical consciousness. Uh, The idea behind this is that if you notice in one breath movement or pressure, If you really see that clearly, there's no possibility for conceit or a wrong self-view. It's just simply air element coming and going, and there's that non-attachment to the body. Water element, we describe it as cohesiveness and and noticing that experience. Uh, The Buddha described it as whatever is oozing and permeating in the field of physical consciousness. So he described bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, dense fat, tears, liquid fat, saliva, mucus of the nose, urine, or anything else in the body which is oozing and permeating. We're supposed to see that as simply water element. If we understand it, then there's no possibility for believing in the body as being me, or I, or mine fire element, all that range from cool or cold to warm to burning. If we see it clearly, there's no possibility for grasping onto the body as being I or me or mine. The Buddha described fire element as whatever is fury in nature in the field of physical consciousness. It gives warmth to the body. It destroys the body. It transforms the process of digesting food that has been eaten, drunk, chewed, or sipped. If you try to get a sense of this, um, how powerful these teachings of being aware of body sensations really is. And I can assure assure you, as you get older, Uh, it's essential, because as the body ages, the identification with the body, if it's strong, it gets so painful. It's so much suffering. And then with mind, emotion, consciousness, unpleasant, pleasant, neutral feelings, uh, this is, it's the same teaching earth, air, fire, and water, come and go by themselves. Seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, smelling, thinking, they come and go by themselves. 
the body and mind is appearing and disappearing by itself. It doesn't belong to us in any way. So hopefully, when we see this clearly at times, you know, we might have glimpses of this, but they're so profoundly transforming these glimpses of the nature of the body and mind. The wisdom tells us that there's nothing worth being attached to. When we get quieter at times, we can start to see not just that range, say, of pressure or heat or cool or solid emotions or thoughts, but it can become very much more like so insubstantial, like disappearing particles, Uh, that we see, again, from this perspective, it's so insubstantial, we couldn't cling to it as being a refuge or a safety. So the question really is, where can you find any refuge or safety in this world? One of the really... um, Interesting things, I think, as we practice over time is some of the physical sensations that are intense that I think of as karmic knots that that are kind of chronic or emotions that can be chronic, meaning that we have um, a lifetime or close to a lifetime of working with these aspects of the body and mind. And over time, I started to see that the karmic knots that I've had have taught me more about anatta than anything. Uh, So that initially, there would be that relationship with something like uh, fear of annihilation, for example, you know, of, of it being something that over time would disappear and I'd get rid of it. Uh... And the reason I'm saying it helped me so much learn about anatta is that I couldn't will myself through the karmic knots. It's like I could have willed my through. I willed myself so much in my life through just about anything. But when I came up against more of the chronic body and mind appearances, I couldn't do it. And it was so humbling, you know, to see that, oh, after five years, I'm still dealing with this. And then after 10 years, oh, that thought pattern's still sticky. After 15 years, gee, that thought pattern's <laughs> pretty sticky. You know, what is that? You know, I had the, I had just had to, I had to change my total uh, sense of what the practice was about. And I had to start letting go more of control and just having that patience of letting these knots untangle themselves. And so I started to shift my relationship between the sense of, First, that I was going to get rid of them as soon as possible. <laughs> you know, to wow, they seem to be sticking around longer than I thought. To gee, this is amazing. They're teaching me more about anatta than anything. You know, what a gift. The resistance to the karmic knots is really what the issue is. It's like whatever the karmic knot is, you can just get a taste of 
that's where you'll, that's where the resistance will be strong. And the resistance is the suffering. So for some reason, this lifetime, when something appears in the body or mind that's like a karmic knot, the knot is the resistance itself. And slowly, over time, that resistance will wear away as we get out of the way, as we let go of control, even with those. And that's what's so wonderful about the practice, you know, that it takes care of itself. Karmic knots even untangle themselves. Uh, And the reason why it's so important to get a sense of this is going beyond the transitory means going beyond greed, hatred, and delusion. So attachment uh, can't free us of attachment. And hatred or aversion or fear can't free us of aversion or fear. Delusion can't free us of, of delusion. So with karmic knots, the greed, hatred, and delusion is such part of the knot that usually it's greed or aversion that's motivating being with the experience. And so it untangles only with pure motivation. In one moment of pure motivation or pure mindfulness or pure understanding, we'll see the truth that wisdom tells me I'm nothing, that even these karmic knots are not mine. They're not me or I. And this truth will free us you know, so deeply. We see that it's the purity of awareness itself that's so liberating no matter what's happening. So in our movie, all of our movies are very unique. And if you could hear all of your stories, you know, the suffering, the range of suffering is mind-boggling. Uh, So there's that uniqueness to the story, the uniqueness of the movie that's being played in our minds. But actually, on a deep level, what's so inspiring about the Buddha's teaching is that the the suffering is universal, that we all share on a very deep level the suffering of greed, hatred, and delusion, and that that's just a misperception. So if we see clearly, we see that we're not trying to get anything because there's nothing to get. And we see that we don't have to get rid of anything because there's nothing to get rid of. And all we have to do is be where we are. You know, and over and over again, no matter what's happening, to just be where we are and to try to see where we are as clearly as we can. This is uh, the mindfulness as a soft readiness or an imperturbability. It's a soft readiness for whatever is happening to unfold. And liberation is seen clearly uh, that it's not happening to any solid separate self. I was reading a book recently called Graceful Exits. Uh, It's a a compiled uh, book of stories of masters, great masters, just before 
they died. And I wanted to uh, read you one simple one. When Zen Master Soho was dying, his disciples asked him to write a death verse. He demurred at first, saying, I have no last words. They pleaded with him, so he took up a brush, wrote the character for dream, and passed away. The story we get caught in can seem so real, but it literally is just a dream. Most of you have heard of Maharaji, the great guru, Neem Karoli Baba from India. The day that he died, he told everybody in the ashram that he had to leave for several days, and then later announced, today I am released from central jail forever. (laughs) You know, this is such a great image. Today I'm released from central jail forever. And you can do this any moment when mindfulness is there. You can be released from central jail any time there's this purity of motivation. Any moment of mindfulness is a moment of liberation or freedom. And then the great writer Annie Dillard said about gratitude, if I can find it, I've lost it. I think that the dying pray at the last, not please, but thank you, as a guest thanks his host at the door. Now this body and mind, we take birth in it which is a miracle in and of itself. How did this happen? (laughs) How did we get ourselves here? You know, it's amazing. And then to really understand the preciousness of this body, you know, that as a vehicle for awakening, um, moment by moment, to really realize what we've got and how little time we have and how precious it is. Uh, What are we doing here? I was walking the other day in the woods uh, back from a swamp, and this time of year the pine needles uh, are sprinkling down on the ground, so it has this softness um, that is quite exquisite. And I had uh, a moment, a few moments, where as I was walking I was experiencing such intense gratitude for the teachings. Just. overwhelming gratitude. And then I tripped over a log and I fell. (laughs) And and it was just like really a good one. It was just like thud, you know, just right on my face. Uh, And it was great because it was like an immediate bow, you know. It was just that sense of such humility (laughs) and gratitude. It was like even that, 
was just like, oh, Mother Earth, you know, (laughs) bowing. And hopefully you can relate to the times like that where you might be feeling that intensity of understanding or gratitude, and maybe the next moment you're caught in a storm again. It can be that fast. And can you feel gratitude for the whole show? You know, from that glimpse of deep understanding to identification. Can you be okay with that? You know, go for the ride. That's what we're doing here. You know, that's how we learn. And in fact, I'd like to end, if I can find it, with a, um, yeah, a little quote. When Goya was 80 years old, he drew an ancient man propped on two sticks with a great mass of white hair and beard all over his face. And the inscription said, I am still learning. So I hope for you that you don't stop until done is what had to be done. And the house builder is here no more. Let's sit for a minute. May wisdom be our refuge.